All right, this morning we're going to talk about letting Scripture transform your lives, right? What's the point of reading the truth, understanding the truth, and then not obeying the truth, right? That, that wouldn't lead to any transformation. We would be exactly the same. We would, <clears throat> we would just know that we weren't living according to the truth. There's no transformation in knowing something and not living it out. That's where all the value is. So I've been married for 12 years. I know that God wants me to not commit adultery. There's value in knowing that, but there's no value in knowing that but not living it out, right? My wife wants me to live that out for the rest of my life. That's, that's where the value of the scriptures is, is in living out the word of God, not just knowing the word of God. We see this in James chapter 1. In James 1, it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, otherwise you're deceiving yourselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observed his natural face in the mirror, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, listen, this one will be blessed in what he does. The blessing happens in us doing the word of God and living it out. And that makes sense. We understand that we have to live it out for there to be any type of a change. And so letting the scriptures transform you comes through applying the scriptures through application. So we want to take what the scriptures mean when we understand this is what the author was trying to communicate to the original audience in that historical setting. How does it relate now to my world? Now that I know that, how does it relate to what I'm going through my present day situations? W.H. Griffith said, through and above all the stages of Bible study, we must press until we arrive at the summit, which is the use of the Bible as God's personal word to our own souls. What says the Lord to his servant and what do you want me to do? Should be the main questions that we're asking ourselves as we spend time in the word. Luther said, the world doesn't need as much of a definition of religion as it needs a demonstration of it, right? People, it doesn't help anyone to know the truth without being able to see it. If they see that we know truth and it's not affecting our lives, then there's not going to be any desire to live it out. I love what, what Moody did. He would go through the scriptures. He would see a promise in the Bible. Then he would take the next few days, weeks, or months and try and live it out. And if he lived it out and, and re- received or experienced the same reward that he saw in the scriptures, he would go back to that verse and write the letters T and P for tried and proved. And so eventually his Bible was filled up with these initials everywhere. And people are like, what's that all about? Oh, these are the verses that God's allowed me by his grace to live out. And I've found the Bible to be worth it, found the Bible to be true in the promises that we see there. What a great thing to do. Now, if we're applying the scriptures, it has to be built on a good interpretation. Uh, It's good to do things that are good morals, right? It's great to not steal, to not lie. But if that verse isn't really communicating that, then we're on a shaky foundation. So it'd be great to do good Christian things. But you have to remember that, that cults, right? Cults and other religions are the ones that point to the Bible, twist the meaning of it, and then um, apply it to what they want the Bible to mean. We can't do that, right? We've got to have a good interpretation if we're going to live it out the right way. That's why in other cults you, you see, they're like, oh yeah, this is why we marry multiple women is because of this verse we see in the Old Testament. You're like, whoa, you're twisting the scripture in that, in that section. Roy Zuck, who brought his glasses back into style recently, said, in their intense desire to find something devotional or practical, Christians sometimes distort the original meaning of some passages of scripture. 
I think I'm guilty of that sometimes, right? Where I'm, I'm reading the Bible, I'm doing my devotions, I want it to apply to me. And so I, I take it maybe out of context and I'm like, yeah, this is for me in this season. And, and I want something devotional so bad that sometimes I skip out on understanding the historical place of it before I bring it into my life in the right context. So it's important to start by looking at similarities. A lot of what I'm going to be covering is, is on your, your handout. Some of it isn't. And at the end of our time together, I want to kind of take you through an example through the handout that works you through. When you come up with a basic idea of what you think the passage means, how can you then develop an application that will help you to live it out in a practical way? The first thing you have to do is look for similarities between your life and the life that you see in the scriptures. Are there any key components that you share with that situation? And if there are, then you're safe to transfer those principles to your life uh, without contradicting anything. And so sometimes you bump into difficult passages of scripture and you're like, is this, is this for me? The New Testament feels easy to apply, but what about some passages in the Old Testament? Look at this passage, Deuteronomy 16 to 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose, which ended up being Jerusalem. So in Old Testament times, all the tribes had to visit Jerusalem three times a year for certain feasts and bring sacrifices. And God did this to keep the nation united, to keep their hearts focused on coming back to the Lord. As a Christian, when you read this, this would be very difficult to apply, right? Three times a year, I will get on a plane and fly to Jerusalem Maybe I'll like a FaceTime call into Jerusalem at least and, and be there. Like how would you live this out and still be able to afford to live anywhere outside of, of Israel? So you realize, okay, that's not for me to live out. So when I read that, do I just read through it quickly and disregard it? Well, no, this is where we look for a broader principle because we can't live out the specific command in the same way that the Israelites could. But because we see God's heart in this verse, we look for a broader principle. And so you can see God's heart in this verse about wanting to keep the nation unified and keep people consistently coming to him. And so you could look at a passage like this and you could have a safe application of saying, you know, I need to be attending church regularly because that's good for my heart to be going to the Lord often. I need to be having personal devotions in a regular manner because it's good for me to keep coming back to the Lord. That would be an okay application for a verse that you can't live out specifically because it wasn't intended to apply to you, although the principle is something that you could have. So how do we find these broader applications? <clears throat> We have an example from Paul using an odd verse in the Old Testament. He uses it in 1 Corinthians, and as we look at how he uses the verse, we can discover how we can find broader principles. So imagine stumbling across this verse in your morning devotions. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Mm. Now, if you're a farmer, you're like, man, the Bible is relevant. This Bible is relevant. You pat the ox on the back, you know, and you're like, the Bible even concerned about you. You take the muzzle off and let it eat some grain. And you're like, man, the Bible's so real. I don't know why people say it's outdated. It's real, you know. And that, that would be great. But what about everyone else who isn't a farmer? You know, what do, what do you do in that moment? And then in 1 Corinthians 9, we see of all places, Paul reaching back to Deuteronomy to convince people that a worker is worthy of his wages and specifically that a minister can be paid for, for their services. And you're like, man, this is an odd verse that he does uh, to, to find that. But him using it like that shows us a principle of how to find broader, um, broader principles, right? So how do we do it? First, understand the original situation and how God's word applied to that situation. So you always start in the historical setting. 
And so in that situation, we just realized, okay, the oxen had a right to eat. That was just the proper thing. It would be, it would be wrong to have the oxen treading out the grain with a muzzle on. And he's, it's like he's stepping over his own food that he wants. That'd be like putting me in a chocolate factory and putting a muzzle on me and making me work at the chocolate factory. It's just cruel, right? And so God's like, hey, that's not how you, that's not how you treat your animal. That's how it applied in that original situation. And then you have to determine if this passage reflects a specific application or a broader principle. Here, Paul thinks it reflects a broader principle beyond animals. And he says, a worker has a right to be paid. That's the broader principle that he gets from this animal passage here. Hey, workers deserve to be paid, just like an oxen should be able to eat while he's working as well. That's the broader principle. Then he applies it to his specific situation, and in his life situation, he's trying to explain why a minister would be allowed to be paid for his services as well. A minister's got a right to be paid as well. So understand the original situation, look for a broader principle, and then apply it specifically to your life. And that's a, that's a healthy way to look at the scriptures and say, I, I can't live out that specific command but I can live out a broader principle of that command. I believe that's how the Bible was intended to be used. That's how Paul used it right here. That's not just us. We don't make up our own rules when we look at the Bible. We look and see how the Bible interprets itself. And Paul is, he's he's not living out the specific command, but looking for a broader principle so we can do the same thing in the scriptures. And so you look at passages like this, Matthew 5. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. That's a specific command that Jesus gave to those that were living under Roman rule, where the the legal command was that a Roman soldier could look at any one of its citizens, anyone that was under its control, and say, carry my armor for one mile. So the rule was there to prevent abuse, so that the Roman soldiers couldn't say, carry my armor for the rest of your life, or for all day. But it was also there to help the Roman soldiers because they weren't technically helping the land. And so every person had to do their duty and carry it to a limited amount and then get back to their work. And it wasn't the end of the world to do that, right? So that's a specific command. And Jesus is saying, be different as a Christian because you're filled with love and your God is a servant, so you should serve. So when the Roman soldier gets to a mile, you say, I'll do another mile. I'll be glad to continue helping you. You know, thanks for your service. And, and then when they begin to ask questions, you know, you'd think, well, yeah, this is the Lord that's, that's having me do this, right? This is because of God's goodness that I'm glad to serve you. So he's saying, go an additional mile. But we don't have that command, right? So that this, this is something that you think, oh, can I ignore it because there's no Roman soldiers? Well, obviously not, right? This is New Testament, a command from Jesus. And even though it was specific to that culture, obviously the Sermon on the Mount is something we can apply in our lives. And so the broader principle is that we should go above and beyond what is required of us because we're servants, because we're free to serve, right? And we don't have to be angry about it. So this would apply to a situation at work where you think it's uh, unfair that your boss is asking you to do the worst job at work and he's favoring other people by not asking them to do that, but you joyfully do that job and then the next day you volunteer to do that job again rather than the normal rotation. And then when they say, that's weird, why would you volunteer for that? I just want to serve you guys. I know everyone hates this job, so I'll do it for a few days. That would be a legitimate application of a, a broader principle of what Jesus said. Does that make sense? Just look for the broader principles there. Matthew 5, 22. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So the specific command at that time period would be to actually avoid saying the word Raka. 
and would be to actually avoid saying the phrase, you fool. But I think Jesus even expects a broader principle to the people listening that could live out the specific command, just like he expects it from us. It would be wrong to think that God would allow you to say, you moron, but not you fool, right? But if you have the same angry heart, you would be in violation of this principle, right? And so it, it, in our world, we'd, we'd say, okay, Christians shouldn't curse, right? So there's some curse words we shouldn't say. Um, but so you're like, okay. But then what if instead of cursing, you're just always saying like, you idiot, you know, and you're like, I have hate, hatred in your heart. Like, well, I didn't curse. And I didn't say raka or you fool. No, you're in violation of biblical principles and the heart of God in what he's trying to communicate here. Now, when we look at the scriptures, that's how you find a broader principle. How do we know what passages really do relate to us or not? Right? Especially when you look at the Old Testament. You're like, how does, this, how does this make sense? Do we have a biblical basis for obeying some commands and not others? Right? How do we, because we're accused of picking and choosing certain verses to live out and, and not others. Right? You're like, oh, well, you eat, you eat uh, shrimp, but you think homosexuality is a sin. And, and they're like, see, you pick and choose verses that meet your agenda. And you're like, well, hold on. That's not actually what's, what's happening here. And so are there passages that are just cultural and are, there, are all the passages we're supposed to be obeying ourselves? Now, you don't find a distinction like this in the Bible, but it can be helpful to categorize Old Testament, Old Testament commands in this way. You can divide them up into three categories, civil, ceremonial, or moral. Now, this is an oversimplification, but it is helpful to kind of process through which commands should we be aiming to live out as New Testament Christians versus which ones weren't intended for us. So some of the commands, civil commands, were intended for the nation of Israel, Every nation has its own rules, right? I'm actually not worried right now about any Italian rules over there in Italy. None of those things affect me at all. They can't, they have no jurisdiction over me. And actually, as a New Testament Christian, the rules for ancient Israel obviously have no jurisdiction over me. And the rules for ancient America, you know, early America don't have any jurisdiction over me if they've been, if they've been changed, right? So civil laws are about the country. Ceremonial laws are about religion, right? This is how God wanted the religion to, to, to operate in Old Testament times. And then moral laws are God's, God's moral heart and commands, ethical laws. So for civil laws like the criminal code, laws regulating the nation of Israel, even Sabbath codes, those are, um, what's the description of those? For ceremonial religious laws, you're talking about the sacrificial system, the cleanliness code, food restrictions, and the feasts. And for moral laws, you can really summarize those in the Ten Commandments, but all, there are moral laws outside of the Ten Commandments as well. And these represent God's character. So here's a few principles for looking at these different categories and seeing how they apply to us. Is the Old Testament passage a civil or ceremonial law? So does it relate to the nation of Israel or to the religion of, of Israel? If that's the case, then they're not to be followed today by, by New Testament believers, right? They're not to be followed. They found their fulfillment in Christ, and many of them have actually been revoked or repealed in the New Testament because we're in a new covenant now. And so with a new covenant, with the blood of Christ, there's, there's new guidelines and there's new expectations. And so we see in, in Mark 7 that the food laws were repealed for, for Peter. And in Acts 15, it says, therefore, why do you test God? This is Paul defending um, you know, the, the, the Christians about not having to wear the, the yoke, having to live out the laws of, of Israel. 
Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither their fathers nor we were able to bear, right? It's like, you know, the New Testament believers don't have to live out the commands of the Old Testament in that type of a way, right? And so if it's a, if it's a nation of Israel or an, a religion command for that time, then that's not for you today, right? And that's because the Old Testament was provisional and it was designed to prepare us for the new covenant, Right? And so it would be obvious that there would be changes in the new covenant. So the, uh, the Nazarites were commanded to, you know, if they were taking that vow to have long hair, and in the New Testament times, long hair in that culture was dishonorable for a man to have. That's obviously changed since our hippie friends um, changed things in the 60s, right? And so culturally that would be different and not apply to us. And so, th- so things are different now. Imagine somebody saying this. Millions of people in every state of America are disobeying the Constitution. They don't believe the Constitution, which clearly states in the 18th Amendment, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors is completely prohibited. So see all these people out there drinking, they don't believe in the Constitution. You'd say, well, wait a second, that was once the law of the land, but the 21st Amendment starts with the 18th article of the Amendment to the Constitution is hereby repealed. Right? So you're like, it wouldn't make any sense to live out an old law that was repealed, and many of the laws in Israel were repealed in the New Testament and then fulfilled in Christ. Second principle, if the passage is a moral law, then of course we have to live it out because, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And so God's moral nature never changes. So when you read in Proverbs, these six things I hate, yes, seven are an abomination to me, they will always be an abomination to God. God doesn't hate something one day and then change his mind and say, well, it's actually okay now. You know, culture's changing. God's outside of all of that. God's morals are are universal and apply to everyone on this planet, right? So moral laws have to be lived out um, by all of us all the time. Now, some passages in the Bible are just descriptive instead of prescriptive, right? So they just describe something, and just because they describe it doesn't mean that you have to live it out, right? So in the Old Testament, we see that, that some of the kings had more than one wife. That doesn't mean that that should be the code, right? God established his priority and, and his design in Genesis with one man and one woman. And then there was, there's, there was this compromise throughout the Old Testament, and it always led to disaster. Rachel, Rachel Leah, David and his wives, it, it always led to a disaster when people disobeyed God's design. And then in the New Testament, you know, God said, hey, this is the clear design I had in the beginning, and let's just make sure that's, that's obvious, right? And so just because something is described in the Bible, like Japheth and Judges and his horrible vow that he made, right, doesn't mean that we have to live it out. If it's a description, then you can just observe it because it's history. If it's prescribing you to do something, then you, then you live it out. If it pertains to an individual's non-repeatable circumstance, then obviously you don't live it out. So there's certain things that you just can't reproduce because it was a command. Yeah, it was an imperative, but it was given to one person for a particular purpose, right? So Paul asked Timothy to bring his cloak and his scrolls to him. That was a command, right? has nothing to do with you. The broader principle could be, you know, I'm too forgetful about believers in prison, and I need to be sending them resources more often. Look how much Paul just wanted something to read, and look how cold he was. I'll send some resources to the, the prison ministry. That's a good broader principle, but you can't live out an individual's non-repeatable circumstance. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. So in, in Genesis 22, you're not going to be commanded to sacrifice your children, right? That was, a, that was a very specific moment in Scripture. And then five, 
Some things pertain to a cultural setting that have no similarities, and so we're not expected to live those things out as well, right? We, we don't have to follow those things in a specific manner. So in 1 Corinthians, when it says that a woman should pray with her head covered, there was a lot of specific stuff going on in that culture that had to do with, um, you know, the husband's authority and disrespecting your husband. And so it's just not the same. A head covering has nothing to do with respecting your husband. Maybe, you know, taking your ring off and throwing it down and walking away, away would be an equivalent or saying, I'm not taking your last name, right? So there's different things that show a respect of your husband, um, but this cultural situation doesn't apply, so you'd have to look for broader principles as well. All right, so some commands transfer seamlessly, like in Leviticus 19, where it's, it says don't steal, right? Just don't steal. Okay, that goes for every single culture. And then other commands, you have to find varying expressions. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's all practice that right now. Whoever you're sitting, no, don't do that, don't do that. Um, that's, a, that's a command in the scriptures to greet one another with a holy kiss, but culturally you've got to apply that the right way. So in Italy today, in churches, this might be the exact way to apply it, right? Where it's like, hey, uh, let's take a moment before you sit down after worship, greet one another. And in their culture, you know, and then, you know, there's always seasons in America where people are like, oh, I'm Italian, you know, oh, you actually like kissing. Uh, so in our culture, like, it can be very different, right, depending on where you are, in, even in America. And so greet one another could just be saying, hi, how you doing? Or it could be a handshake or a hug. Um, and the principle can be, be welcoming. Maybe invite somebody out to lunch after church and talk, talk the sermon over with them because you want to be welcoming uh, to each other in the body of Christ, right? So those are some things to keep in mind as far as looking for similarities from the culture of Bible times to our times. And then you have to decide on how to live out the truth, right? I've identified the truth. How do I live it out? There's a, a silly acrostic that uh, some people use to try and think of different ways to apply the, the scriptures. It's space pets, you know, space pets. Nobody owns one. Uh, people are still looking for them on different planets, but they, they don't own them. But acrostics are supposed to be ridiculous so you remember them. So this one stands for, is there a, a sin to avoid or to confess? or a promise to believe in with conditions, an attitude to change, a command to keep, an example to follow, a prayer to pray, an error to mark, or a truth to meditate on. And the S's didn't fit on my slide, and I really care about symmetry, and I think it would be crazy to have a slide with one thing on it. So the S is something to thank God for, but I removed it from here. But, um, so you can look at those different categories, and you can say, okay, based on the truth that I discovered in the scriptures, what are different ways I can live this out? And you could run through a list like that, and maybe only a few of them apply, but it can help you start thinking about ways that you could be faithful to the scriptures in living out the command. Now that you know some general ways to be faithful to the scriptures, and you have a general application, um, like if, the, if you look at the scriptures and say, yeah, love your neighbor. Okay, I'm gonna love my neighbor. I'm gonna love my neighbor. You have to fine tune it and make it specific so that you can actually live it out. The way you do that is by making it personal, practical, and provable. So it's personal. It's about you. So you think about love your neighbor, and then you say, okay, who's my neighbor? And you can identify, okay, it could be my actual neighbor, or it could be someone I work with, somebody in the community, somebody I walk to, but I pass them every day on the way to school. And, and you identify, okay, for me, what is the Holy Spirit asking me to do? And, and as you're praying about that, you might think of one person that you can have say, this, this is my neighbor, right? And then you make it practical. How can I love my neighbor? Well, my neighbor has, um, you know, for, for me, my neighbor has kids the same ages as me. And so 
I know he's probably craving some private time with his wife, so maybe my family could offer to babysit their kids and get them a, a gift card to go out to eat to give them a little sanity time, right? That would be a practical thing. See, you have to be practical and make it a small project so you actually live it out. Because if your goal after a sermon, you feel convicted and you're like, I want to love my neighbor. I want to love the world. That's great. You're going to do nothing because it's very difficult to love 8 billion people. So you have to break it down and start with one person, right? And so my neighbors, my, my actual neighbor, I'm going to love them practically because I want to love them like I would love myself and love them sacrificially. So yeah, I'm going to help them go on a date. We're going to babysit their kids give them a gift card to go out. And then provable is giving yourself a deadline. Because how many times have you sat in a sermon or done a Bible study and you have these great intentions and you never live them out? That's a good start, but it doesn't help at all with the transformation. And so provable, you give yourself a deadline. So you talk about it. So I would, I would share this idea with my wife and say, hey, let's do this this Saturday. Put it on the calendar. That way when Saturday passes and busyness or laziness got in the way, I could look at it and say, no, that's wrong. Like, this is a sin of omission. God, you know, I feel like the Holy Spirit told me to live out the scriptures like this. And so because the deadline passed, you know, I, I know that I've, I've, you know, messed up there. My wife can keep me accountable to that. So that's an example of um, living out a three-piece application. Then I think it's helpful, even before you live it out, to pause and journal and, and talk to the Lord about what difference is this going to make? What change is this actually going to make in my life or in their life? Is my character going to change because of living this out? Uh, maybe I'm loving an enemy and my, my heart begins to be softened and become uh, more compassionate. Will sinful habits weaken their grip on me? Will I be a stronger witness for the gospel? You take some time and say, here's what's going to change in my heart and here's what's hopefully going to change in somebody else's heart if I'm obedient to the truth of scriptures. This can just be good motivation for living it out and saying, yeah, God's word it's intended to do something amazing and hear the great effects of it. Afterwards, so you pray and you say, Lord, by your grace, I want to live this out. I know this doesn't affect my salvation. I know you're not going to love me more whether I live it out or don't live it out. But by your grace, I want to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. So I'm not deceiving myself. So you pray and you, you live it out. And then afterwards, if you remember, it can be helpful to journal what happened, right? What are the results of living it out? <laughs> and so if you if you did live it out, you can write down and say, man, my neighbor was so blessed. They were just kind of blown away. And our relationship's been stronger ever since. They seem just to greet us, you know, and wave at us more. And it really seems like it, it strengthened our, our fellowship when we did that. Or if you fail to live it out and you come back to your journal and maybe it's just impossible to live out now because the timing passed or something, you can take some time and, and write down and just say, Lord, why, you know, why didn't I do this? Lord, what's going on in my heart? And you can even preach the gospel to yourself so that you don't condemn yourself because the enemy is going to want to beat you up and say, see, you're a deceiver. You don't really live out the word. And you preach the gospel to yourself and say, Lord, I know it's not about works, but help me next time to live it out. And just journal what your experience was in doing that. So let's go through an example together. If you're looking at your worksheet, you've got a blank sheet. I'll fill this one in on the screen. So let's do Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, which says in Philemon, where I am. So it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, to all that are in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So maybe you read through the whole Sermon on the Mount in your devotional reading, and you say, wow, there's a lot in there. I need to pick at least one thing that I'm going to live out because there's so many good things I could live out. What's one thing I could live out? So you start by looking at similarities. What's going on in that situation that applies to your situation? Sometimes if you're looking at ancient Israel, there's some big differences, but maybe some similarities. In this case, it's pretty similar. I mean, Jesus is giving a good uh, moral principle and a good biblical truth in our identity, and so it's very similar. So you say, I, I live in a dark world also, and there are opportunities for me to be a light to the world as well. You ask yourself the question, does this passage require a specific application? Right? Can I live it out exactly how it's described, like don't steal? Or do I need to find a broader principle, like don't muzzle an ox? And so in this case, I can live it out exactly uh, the way it is, a specific command. So for me, I should live my life in a way where people see me doing good things for the purpose of pointing them to the light of the gospel. But see, this is still very general, so you might not do anything with it. So you begin to filter through some of these other questions. Is there a sin to forsake, confess, um, or avoid? You look at the verse again and say, okay, is there a sin in here that I would need to confess? And I guess the sin would be hiding the gospel, you know, putting the gospel under a basket, not sharing your faith, not doing good works, um, you know, for, you know, for people to glorify the Lord in. That would be, that would be a sin to forsake. Not all these passages or these questions may apply to your verse, but I, I tried filling them all out just as an example. Is there a promise to claim with conditions to meet? It's not written in the form of a promise. Um, it's written more in the form of a statement. But there's some cool promises in there, like my identity in Christ, right? So if I'm a believer, this is my identity. You are the light of the world. That's not a, it's not a promise, but it's cool. It's a good realization to say, this is what I am. I, I am this in Christ. Is there an attitude to change? Fear of social persecution when sharing my faith, right? Like, I'm just going to get rejected. People are going to think I'm lame. People are going to laugh at me or talk bad about me. That would be an attitude if it applies that you'd want to change. Is there a command to obey? Well, I need to give God glory by letting my light shine. Give God glory by doing good works. These works seem to be um, okay to be done while others are observing them as well. You don't do it with the motive of other people observing them, but it's okay if these works are discovered. People will give God glory. Is there an example to follow? You might think of the rest of Scripture if it's not seen in that passage. So you think, oh, well, Stephen the martyr was an example of somebody letting their light shine. He gave a good testimony before he was murdered, right? Or uh, Tabitha, or her better name, Dorcas. Um, she was known as someone who did good deeds and good works and had a genuine faith. Is there a prayer to repeat? Well, there's no prayer there, so you turn the verse back into a prayer. So something like, Lord, forgive my fear and help me to live boldly for you. I want to be a light for the world, and you can pray it back to the Lord. Is there an error to avoid? Thinking that I'm not light, right? It says, you are the light of the world. So you might think, well, I'm not the evangelist. Some people are the evangelist. That's not me. Well, wait a second. This is a passage for every believer, right? You are the light of the world. And, and this command should be lived out where people can give God glory for your life. So an error would be thinking, I'm not the evangelist. I'll leave that to other, to other people. Um, is there a truth to memorize? You are the light of the world would be a good truth to meditate on. Is there something to thank God for? that my life can be used to give God glory. That's pretty cool. Like I've done a lot of rotten stuff. One city over in New York City before I was a believer. Man, what a mess. What a, what a bad few years that was. My life can give God glory. That's, that's amazing. God would still allow me to be used. 
These are good ways to process through some possible specific applications, but now you need to choose one. So you've really thought through this. And now you're just praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I actually live this out, right? And so you may fine tune your application to be a three P's application by saying, I'm going to go serve at the local soup kitchen this month. And as I distribute food, I'm going to try and encourage people in the Lord and try and pray with them. I'm also going to purchase five Bibles to bring with me just in case any of the conversations go well to make sure that those people can connect what I'm doing to God so that he can get the glory like this verse is saying. So that would be a specific application, but even this can go undone. That's why you add a deadline. So you're like, I'm doing this this Saturday, this Saturday. So you put it in your calendar. You tell somebody else, hey, ask me on Sunday if I'm a sinner. (laughs) Ask me if I went to the soup kitchen. If I didn't call me, they're lazy or I'm in the hospital. All right. And you have some accountability to live it out. Now, obviously, any practical work you do can turn into legalism, but that doesn't mean we should be lazy to avoid legalism, right? There's got to be a way, based on all the scriptures we see, to live out the Word of God without it being legalism. It's all about your heart, your motives, and your attitude as you do it. So before I do it, I'm going to pause and think about what difference living out this application would make. This will help me to overcome some fears I have in sharing my faith It'll help me prioritize my money towards evangelism by buying the Bibles. And Lord willing, best case scenario, someone who has lost hope may turn to God because of this service. That'd be like the ideal. The ideal would be having a fantastic conversation with one person about the Lord and it being something that ministers to them, that they remember God loves them, you know, and that, that'd be the best. And then what happens afterwards? Well, I don't know. It didn't, didn't happen yet. All right, so you'd fill, in, you'd fill in those blanks later. All right, so that's an example of how to um, live out a passage. Right now, you don't, you don't have to go through a worksheet like that every time you read the Bible, but if you want to jumpstart your, your way to live out the scriptures and you feel like, I read a lot, I have good intentions a lot, I hear a lot of good sermons, but I want to start doing more, this would be a way to go from general truths about scripture and general applications to something so specific that you could actually do it. And then the key is not substituting a one-time obedience for a lifelong change, right? So it would be wrong to say, okay, I'm going to obey the scriptures this one time, and then the next month you're disobeying that passage. Your heart really hasn't changed. It doesn't become a lifestyle, and you're just focusing on other things. So the goal is always lifelong change, not one-time obedience. So hope that makes sense.